Welcome to the Law of Startups Podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I am Joe Wallen. Thank you for being with us today. Uh, today, we're very, very lucky to have on the show uh, Adam Phillip, a Seattle patent lawyer and uh, man about town. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. So, Adam, you, you, you are involved in all sorts of cool things in the world. I mean, you're a patent lawyer, which is cool, and you have your own patent law firm, and you've had that law firm for, gosh, I don't know how long now. Um, it, it's going on 12 years now. Well, wow, congratulations. So you've just been doing, you're the patent guy. So, but tell us about that. What does that mean exactly? And like, Well, yeah. it, mean, it means I get to see all the cool new, cool new toys before anybody else is basically what it means. Um, it, it's uh, individuals and companies tend to show up and I'm the first person they get to tell the secret sauce to. Well, that's a that's a pretty good description. Sorry, Mike, you're about to say something. Oh no, I was going to say that I've I've known Adam too for for a while, and um, yeah, I think he's he's when it comes to software patents, he's the kind of go to guy for me in in town. Um, you know, the thing about patent lawyers is they they tend to focus on a specific thing. So you've got your biotech patent lawyers and your patent lawyers that deal with medical devices. Um, but Adam uh, has always been the guy that I I turn to when I when I've got uh, software patent questions, um, which is uh, a good Seattle's a good place to be for that. But uh, yeah, welcome to the show. I'm glad I'm glad to have you on. It's great. So Adam, it's not just software though. You see gadgetry. You like you're privy to the new gadgets. Well, I mean, we tend to get all kinds of technologies coming in the door. We're known for computer electronics and software in our firm. Um, but Aon Law has done farming systems, hydroponic systems. Autonomous uh, weed whackers, um, include um, automobile tools. I mean, yeah, we, we tend to see all kinds of things coming in the door. Um, but where where we provide a lot of value is on the software side because it has been a challenging time for software patents, probably the last four or five years. And that's when patent attorneys really can show their true value for companies. So software patents, so it's still possible. There's still some pathway to get a patent on some sort of software item. Absolutely. The, I mean, the Supreme Court came down with the decision referred to generally as the Alice decision that made it very difficult to get software patents that are focused around business methods. And... Basically, their main concern was that people were taking old methods and re-implementing them in software. And if they re-implemented that old method in software using just a very conventional computer and not adding any additional value, that it would preempt anybody else from using that old method on this new medium. And so the challenge is how to differentiate these patents or the patent applications that are focused on new methods for old or new technology using old methods versus new methods with new technology. I see. And so we've seen a real pushback from the patent office on trying to get some patents through. But as long as you're able to demonstrate to them that this truly is 
a new technology and you're not trying to preempt something that existed beforehand, then they're more willing to let patents go through the system. Okay. Well, so the Oh, go ahead, Mike. I was going to say, so the bar is a lot higher, right? It's like, like it just, I guess when I think about software, it, I read an article a while back. I don't, I don't really know the source, but it was, it was talking about how the, 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 the age of the easy software is over and that it's now time for all the software, for all us software engineers to get to work on really technical problems. And, and what it was, what it was saying was that, um, you know, for the last 10 years, all of the software development, you know, the majority of it has been focused on things like you know building websites and facebook and photo sharing and and content delivery systems and so it was i guess the idea being that it was all about like content and and kind of superficial software applications that were i guess you could say bringing those business models to to software um so in a sense that they're taking something that where the maybe the invention happened a long time ago and they're just bringing this invention to you know the modern day using software um, and they were saying that you know those opportunities are drying up and and as we're starting to get into things like drones and and um, AI software that uh, you know the time to get to work on really interesting hard computer science problems is now upon us um, and so maybe that's sort of maybe that's sort of the I don't know where that line is, but it sounds like that's what what you're saying with the patent office is that, you know, these, you know, if you write a piece of software that's going to just like, you know, do what you used to be doing on paper and do it on a, on a screen, that's probably not going to be a, in, it, it, the patent office is kind of wising up that that maybe isn't isn't um, complicated enough. But if you're if you're developing a new method for you know creating a deep neural network, you know that that might be a different different thing altogether. That's, does that sound right? Yeah, it's it's not so much a complexity issue as is it something that did exist before. But you're right. I mean, I, I do agree that we are now moving into a phase where the software problems that need to be solved are going to be more challenging. And it's one of the things I do push back to a lot of my clients when they're trying to describe their inventions and they, they will sometimes try and gloss over um, parts of the invention that make it very easy for the user. But as a computer scientist, I know in the back end to make something very easy for the user may have a very complex black box hiding behind it where there's a lot of intelligence or a lot of intelligent programming going on, a lot of intelligent processing going on to make that experience easy for the user. And it's those black boxes where things that, where computers appear to be doing a lot of things in a user-friendly way, but require deep complex processing. Um, that's where I think there are more opportunities for protecting uh, intellectual property. Yeah. So, so Adam, so the American Events Act created a new process as I understand it. So in the old days, it used to be if you were, if you received a letter saying, hey, you're violating my shopping cart patent, um, you were basically subjected to years of litigation at extraordinary cost, which most, or you just wrote a check and got a license and went home. It was this, it was a shakedown. Let's just call it what it was. It was a shakedown. M maybe some of those patents were valid. A lot of them were bogus. Now we have a process under the American Events Act where you can, instead of being shaken down, or going through years of litigation at, you know, 
hundreds of thousands of dollars of legal fees. You can go before the patent office, a board, some kind of a committee or board before the patent office, in the patent office, and challenge the underlying patent. And my understanding is like 90% of these patents get thrown down, thrown out. Is that true? Or am I, am I not understanding what's going on? Um, so, so yes, it, it is. Um, it's the inter parties uh, review that we're talking about. And um, yes, you, you can be, go before the board and Originally, um, there was an extremely high invalidation rate. Um, and I'm not sure to what extent it was that particularly poor patents were being presented or the board had um, a strong bias. Um, that's starting to even out a little bit. That, that high rejection rate is now leveling or, or tend, is trending downward, and the courts have been pushing back um, against uh, striking these things down so often. They, they've been, it, they have been, and there was um, a recent federal circuit decision that we we're looking at that was interesting, where um, the board had said, you know, it would have been obvious to combine a bunch of these references, and the court said, yeah, hold your horses a little bit not everybody got a chance to argue their, their full amount here. So we're, we want you to go back and reconsider this a little bit. So we're starting to see that dialogue between the agency and the courts. Um, there, what happens in law everywhere and in patent law, particularly since you have a strong agency and strong courts, particularly the Federal Circuit um, Court of Appeals that has a focus um, as part of their duties around patents, is they'll take a wait and see attitude, see how things are behaving, and then it takes a while for cases to bubble up to the court. And then this long distance dialogue happens between the board and the court where they say, no, that policy that you were using, you need to change it a little bit. And so for many of our clients that have had patents where either board or court decisions made them questionable, I mean, whether it's it's a new invention that they're going to be filing or whether it's something that they filed with us, sometimes we'll recommend not speeding up the process, rather slowing it down and waiting for some clarity to come out through the courts. Um, and then conversely, if we do see a positive decision or a positive development for around their technology area, we'll offer them opportunities for speeding up the process. I see. Um, the, the patent office... Um, has provided some interesting new tools along that. There's a, a new type of patent application called the Track 1 Priority Patent Application, where if you file one of those, the patent office has agreed to give you a decision up or down within a year. Oh, wow. Okay, so so if you have, if you have a software tool uh, that might be patentable, you can get an answer from the patent office within a year. So we've been getting them in less than 10 months. Wow. Okay, that's interesting. So what? So for the... Uh, the listeners like who are starting companies, what's the approximate cost of doing something like that? Just a range. I understand it's not probably a canned. I mean, it's, I'm sure it's a it's very variable based on the technology or? Not at all. Okay. So our firm is a little bit different from other firms. We're allergic to the billable hour. So okay. we, we tell our clients pricing up, up front. So a track one uh, patent application is 25K in attorney's fees and 2800 
for government fees. Okay. Um, that's assuming that you're a company of less than 400 employees. Okay. The government has a higher rate for large entities. Okay. Well, so, okay, so 27800 bucks, and you'll hear within a year whether you can get, what, will you actually be awarded the patent within a year? Exactly. Okay. Okay, so let's play the game. Mike, interrupt me here at any moment. But let's say you get a patent. Let's say you're a software company and um, you're doing something like Mike described, maybe some deep learning, machine learning, neural network thing. Right. You get a patent. Then then what? So you can get a patent for lots of reasons. Right. Um, Some people get patents for offensive purposes. They think it's going to be a very competitive landscape and they want to... Uh, sue their competition. Oh, wait, let me backtrack a second. Patents give you negative rights in the marketplace. They give you the right to exclude somebody from the marketplace. They don't give you the right to be there. So if you think of it as a business tool, it's a tool to keep people out of the marketplace. Say, I've carved out this territory. This is my, if you will, intellectual property. These intellectual property boundary lines you can't go into. Well, okay, well, hold on. If they, but can't they just pay a license fee and go into those areas? Or, or no, they just can't go in there? Well, if the patent holder is willing to license... You don't have to license. If you're a patent holder, you can say, no, you cannot go into that area. I don't have to. I'm not forced to license it to you. Um, generally, yes. There are a, a couple exceptions. So, um, if I I'm, infringe, what if I infringe, you can get an injunction and actually stop me from doing it. So. Right. No, but the, the, in, in rare cases, particularly as it relates to pharmaceuticals, the government can force a company to licensing. There's a national security issue. We need this drug out in the marketplace. You have to license it because we need more drugs and you're not making enough. Okay. Um, but other than that, you really can't be forced to license. You can say, no, I want to be the only person that makes this widget. Okay. And so you reserve that marketplace for yourself. So you can have that as an offensive tool. So you get injunctions or uh, sue people for money damages. You can have it as a defensive tool where people will argue that, no, you shouldn't be in the marketplace because we are innovating there, but you can then point to your patent. It's like, no, the patent office, you know, granted me a patent even before you came into existence. So that shows that, you know, I have this legitimate technology that's been reviewed by the patent office. Um, you can get it for PR purposes. I mean, in the U.S., it's you can if something is patented, it means it's gone through a, a review system. Um, and then you can also get it for as a bargaining tool. So people are used to making deals between companies by trading rights for, and money. That's sort of like a defensive. That's sort of like a defensive use, though, right? Right. So um, large companies may often have a lot a large patent pool and they, the cost of litigating all of those would be extraordinarily expensive, particularly if two companies got into a patent war. And so instead of going to war, they may just agree to cross license their technologies and leave them both free to compete in the marketplace while excluding other companies from getting into that territory. Right. It struck me and Mike, I feel like I'm hogging the conversation, but it struck me that the American events act, one thing it did was, um, I mean, it's no longer first to invent now. I mean, it used to be first to invent. So the guy in the garage, if he was actually, actually had proof that he invented the thing at a prior date, and he would have that proof through like journals, yeah, through like his research journals, which would be all dated, and he would have a methodology for keeping track of how he or she did his work. Right. Um, but now uh, the little guy or little person in the garage uh, 
it no longer works that way. It's first to file now, which I feel is kind of unfair to the 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 inventor in the garage. So it's it's not quite first to file. Many okay. other countries have first to file. In the U.S., we still have a hybrid system. It's first inventor to file. Ah, okay. So if the inventor in the garage comes up with this, but they don't have money to file, but their neighbor across the street works at XYZ large company, finds out about his invention, the neighbor can't go and file for the patent and say, I filed first. Because they weren't an inventor. Because they weren't the inventor. They derived it from the true inventor. So you can still argue as an inventor, hey, I was the first one to come up with this. It's also, um, if you can't file, you can publish. So do a podcast, do a blog post, and reveal your technology. And that can be your proof that you had invented it first. That will block other people. That will be prior art that would block other people from filing who had come up with the idea independently. So it's really first inventor to disclose is the one that preserves their rights, or first inventor to file. That said, the best practice, if you have a valuable invention that you want to protect, file it first at the patent office. Right. Um, and that can either be a full patent application or a provisional patent application. Provisional applications are a great tool for startups to use to get their first, in, first inventor to file. Right, because you can file a provisional for like a thousand bucks or something. Um, and again, in the software field, wouldn't recommend, you, you kind of get what you pay for there. Okay. If you're going to be doing it for by yourself, um, it's good to have somebody help you through the process. Um, we charge about 2,900 to coach an inventor through filing uh, a provisional on their own, okay. which is a sort of high touch process leading them through. And we charge about 7K for us to do a provisional that's going to be at the level of detail that's going to survive scrutiny at the patent office when it comes time to do the non-provisional. Um, I, I really recommend doing strong provisionals, but they, they don't need to be as expensive as the non-provisional process. Right. So in terms of like the prior art as a way of invalidating patents that maybe aren't, uh, aren't, shouldn't be good. Uh, does the first to file versus first to invent shift have any effect on sort of the ability to make some bad patents go away? Like, or, or is it, you're still looking at whether something was published. So is it, I guess you can no longer invalidate something because someone else invented it first, but didn't publish it. Is that the difference? Well, so in the U S we have a one year grace period from when somebody first discloses an invention or when a piece of prior art first comes out to when an inventor can file. So um, that's, that's pretty much always been the case. There's this one-year period um, in which an inventor is entitled to file for a patent application. And that's not the normal rule around the world. No, that's not the normal rule. There are a few countries that have grace periods some of them are very specific around trade shows or but the US tries to be gener as generous as possible to inventors by giving them this one year period from when they first talk about um, 
in invention. And first talking about it, that, that first public pitch where they describe the invention in enough detail that somebody knows what it is, that sort of starts your clock ticking to get a patent filed in the US. It may destroy your international patent rights, but at least you can get a patent in the most valuable uh, IP territory, which is the US. And then if somebody else were to have independently invented that thing, they would have they would have had to have independently invented it before you published so that so that you couldn't claim that they may have taken it from the, the exactly. published work. And then so, if they did, they they need to do they need to prove that they so let's say let's say they actually invented it six months before you published. They are they still entitled to be the first to file because they they invented it before the publication? No, that that's how, how that's how things have changed. So let's say um, we got person A, person B. Person A invents it in January. Person B invents it in March, but pitches it in June. And so they've disclosed this invention in June. And then person A files for a patent in July. And then person B files for a patent in August. Generally, person B is going to get the patent rights if, if it ever came to a dispute. There might have to be this new type of um, of argument at uh, before the patent office called a, a derivation process, where did person A derive the invention from person B? Um, but it's it's generally going to be the first um, inventor to disclose the invention. And they're going to look at whether that pitch was a sufficient disclosure um, to see which one gets the rights. And the, the, the policy is to try and encourage inventors to get their inventions into the hands of the public as quickly as possible. So that's, that's kind of the deal between the government and inventors, which is in exchange for giving you a monopoly, we want you to disclose your new technology, your new innovations to the public. And in the past, there had been uncommon scenarios where inventors kept their inventions as submarine patents or hidden from the public. They didn't publish them. They didn't share the technology with the public. They would wait until a field had become very full, and then they would release their patent from the patent office and try and extract large royalties. And the, the Patent Office said that was a bit of a corruption of the purpose in, behind the Constitution, which was to encourage innovation to be released out into the public. Because that's, that's the general purpose, in that once a patent expires, it can't be renewed. That technology is now in the public domain and free for everybody to use. Gotcha. Interesting. So... Let's talk about just like I'm curious, Mike. I don't know if you want to spend more time on the technical aspects of patents, but I was going to ask if you had like if you'd been thinking about gadgets for the holiday gift season, and if you bought Snapchat glasses for anybody yet. <laughs> can we buy these things in Seattle? Um, I'm not sure where you can buy them. Are you a Snapchat user? I'm not much of a Snapchat user, <laughs> but my friend uh, or. or one of my Ignite Speaker colleagues, Karen Chang, just did a great Snapchat glasses video oh, about really? her visit to Japan. 
on um, Ignite? Did she do it? She didn't no, do it on Ignite, but she was she was a great Ignite speaker. Okay. She did one of my favorite Ignite talks on, on how math okay. and music. Oh, really? Um, go together. How do you spell her last name again? If we want to look for it, C H E N G. Okay, okay, and it's Karen. Yes. Okay, okay, fun. Okay, so interesting. So she she just did something regarding Snapchat and her trip to Japan or something. Yeah. So okay. it was um, two hands visiting Japan, and so the whole point was her her hands in front of her doing things in Japan. So you didn't have to, she didn't have to, you know, put a phone in a hand and take a photo. She was able to just wear these glasses. And and Mike and I talked about this before. I mean, I thought it was a pretty neat and novel marketing or sales campaign. They put up these vending machines in various places, but I don't know if they put one up in Seattle yet. I I haven't seen one. I haven't heard of one in Seattle yet either. I don't, I don't know how many they've done. I don't, I don't know if it's like, uh, I think they're doling them out pretty, uh, pretty uh, carefully. You know, like it's, it's a great way to launch a product, right? Because like nobody's asking, you know, how many millions did you ship? They're just saying like, oh, look, it's selling out every time you drop one of these machines and they're creating some demand for it and, and, and a bit of a spectacle. Let's get it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) yeah. Uh, But yeah, it seems like a, seems like a pretty sweet PR plan. Plus I think they're, are they in the middle of like a, I don't know, either an acquisition or something like that. Or, or I was reading something in the paper where they were talking about Snapchat possibly merging with another company. And, um, and I was thinking, man, this, all this, uh, all this hype around the spectacles and the fact that they're moving into some kind of physical product, it's got to help their valuation just because it, it makes it look like there's lots more prospects. You know, it makes them look more than like they're more than a, uh, you know, messaging platform or just a photo thing that makes them look bigger. Yeah, I, I'm just curious. I'm just, I'm frankly just curious about Snapchat because my daughter uses it, and I'm trying to figure out how to use it. And it's, I mean, it's sad, but I feel like I'm a little bit on a learning curve there, and I can't quite figure it out yet. So, yeah, have you tried? So, Snapchat has a thing where if you tap on your face, like and hold, you'll get like a bunch of options in terms of like effects. That that sure. that to me seems to be the the main reason that that I've ever used Snapchat is to is to play with that. It's, it's, uh, the kids love it. It's, it's, uh, you should try that. It's fun. So your, your kids are into this too, Mike? Well, my kids are three and five, so they, they're into the making their faces look like a monkey. Uh, but you know, they don't, they don't text message with their friends or anything like that. But, uh, it, it, you know, the, the filters they put in there is that are, I think are meant to be just kind of a side, a side feature are, are actually pretty compelling in and of themselves just to play with. They could, you can do a thing where you, you swap faces between two people. If you're on the same screen, like it'll 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 switch the faces, um, which is pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I have a uh, where I tend to see it is is people will save those photos and then share them across other social media, and it's just it. I think Snapchat has done a really good job of creating that viral buzz, and so I see a lot of people's Facebook profiles that have either that have some type of Snapchat filter that has been imposed on their photos. Um, and then, you know, when fr- friends go off to museums, they'll do the face swap with famous paintings um, in the museum. So. Right. right. Yeah. And there's this, I don't know. I, I thought about it because, well, one, because I wanted to get some of those spectacles. Uh, and two, I just, it strikes me that that's the sort of thing that's maybe more patentable than a pure software thing. I mean, some sort of gadgetry attached to software. But I don't know if I'm wrong about that. Maybe you don't feel that way. Maybe it's a pattern where you feel like, ah, it could just be pure software. Uh, it could be a gadget. It could be a combination. Maybe it doesn't matter. So um, it, it, it's a lot easier to get new 
interesting hardware technologies patented. Okay, okay, so my perception was correct, okay. Right. So um, the patent office, um, on average, tends to allow more than 70% of the applications that go through the system. And a few years ago, that was similar in the software groups. They would be allowing somewhere in the range of 60 to 80%, depending on the group of patents that went through the system. Some of those groups have dropped from 75% down to 20% oh, allowance okay. rates. Okay. So there, so some of those groups are much, much more challenging to get pure software through. If you have customized hardware, that those are still getting similar types of allowance rates as long as it's really new hardware that it is introducing something that isn't obvious based on old systems. Gotcha. Interesting. Okay. But but where we're seeing real value, both for consumers and as the patent office perceives it, is when Snapchat or somebody comes up with a new piece of hardware that makes something really easy, but on the back end there's very complex software systems that are making it easy for the user. There's a lot of intelligence built into things. And so I think, um, as Mike had alluded to earlier, complex AI systems are still looked on very favorably um, at the patent office, as long as they are really solving those complex problems. Yeah, well, there's, I mean, I, I watch the, um, I follow some folks on Twitter that that do machine learning research and and there's, um, they're always linking to these publications that come out and it, in the, in the world of deep learning and machine learning, um, there's literally like groundbreaking research being published every week, every week, there's somebody publishing something that, that beat a, a benchmark from before. And it's, uh, it's like, you know, really exciting in that space. And it just seems like it's, you know, really contrary to the idea that software is somehow not patentable because it's the stuff that they're doing there is completely new. It's just, um, and they're getting results that are unprecedented. So, yeah, I mean, it's. I guess it just has to be the right kind of software, and and maybe they just need to look at it a little more carefully. But I, I think the idea that software itself should ha somehow, you know, be uh, disfavored in terms of giving patents to to it, it just seems like it. Uh, you know, it should it should absolutely be be patentable. It just needs to be the right kinds of things. And um, and, and that that's when I that's what I tell my clients is when you have those hard problems. That your your team has banging their is banging their head on banging their head on that they're having a, a very hard time you know getting things to work the right way, um, and then there's that aha moment where somebody says oh if we if we did it this way, um, it would completely solve X Y Z problem. I mean we we had a a client that was banging on the cost of their cloud processing infrastructure. Um, and they had they had thousands of instances that they needed to spin up to solve a particular problem. And one of their engineers said, you know, if we change this one basic sort of preconceived requirement that we thought we had to use, and we just did it in this completely different way, we would only need to use three instances. And it has proved to be such a valuable um, valuable innovation that now their competitors, instead of competing with them, just buy their products. Hmm. 
um, or license. I mean, essentially buy their products so they get the license of the technology. Hmm. Um, so it, it's it's those hard problems that produce the most interesting intellectual property, in my view. Yeah, Mike and I talked about this a little bit before, but um, it may be fun to touch on this just at the end of the show. The idea that, okay, it used to be you bought like a coffee pot or something like this, and I mean, you know, maybe there was some patented, you know, technology there. Maybe there wasn't. Uh, but but in general, the device was, you could look at the device, you could see how it worked. And, uh, you know, maybe if you were a tinkerer in your garage, you could, you could take it apart and you could actually build it in your garage. But today what we have is we have these really complex pieces of uh, machinery, like the Roomba or something that's got like, you know, thousands of lines of uh, computer software code buried in it. Millions of lines. But yeah, yes. millions of lines. Like cars are a great example, right? Cars have like more software than like any other thing, I think, maybe that we we use. More lines of software than our piece. I don't know. But huge, monstrous code bases. Right. And then you, so you're not buying just the good anymore. You're 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 licensing the software and acquiring the good. And you're actually, I believe most, in almost all instances, the licenses prohibit you from like taking apart the Roomba and trying to hack it. I think that's actually disallowed under their license. I don't, how much time do you spend thinking about this sort of thing? And what do you think about it in general as a trend? And is it good for consumers at the end of the day or good for inventors? Or how do you, what do you think about that? Or is this just all sort of the same as everything else that's come in the past and it's just another variant on it. Well, restrictions on reverse engineering um, usually don't relate to patents because in order to get a patent, you need to have an issued document that lays out all the secret sauce. Right. Um, Usually the restrictions on reverse engineering have to do with trade secrets or copyright infringement. Right. Um, And... People don't want to, you know, have that competition out there. Now, with cars, there's also additional factors. You don't want people modifying those lines of code in a way that could be unsafe. Sure. But what if you hacked the Roomba and you found out it was secretly recording all your conversations or something? And you wanted to divulge that information to the public. I mean, there's similar safety concerns, perhaps, with some of these devices. Your TVs that watch you, your, right. <laughs> your PCs that watch you. I mean, I don't know. We don't know what these machines are doing. Right. So we the, can't the, discern. So the, there have been some recent decisions around and policy changes around the Digital Millennium Copyright Act that do allow some um, reverse engineering in, in certain circumstances. Um, if you are going to make a concerted commercial effort, to try and take something apart or duplicate it, eh, it's a good idea to sit down with an IP attorney and just double check that this is going to be a worthwhile commercial enterprise and you're not going to get shut down part yeah, of so the process. If, I mean, some, some people make a living off, um, and Mike knows more about this than me, but some people make a living off of revealing security uh, weaknesses in devices. Yeah. And so... But like, but I think that, like, for example, say you believe that the Roomba had a security weakness. Uh, if you just went and bought the Roomba at the store, I think when you bought it, the license, the license agreement that came along with buying it would prohibit you from actually revealing the security weakness. And it depends depends on the license agreement, I guess. And um, and I don't know. There are some 
exceptions with respect to reverse engineering that apply to things like interoperability. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think you see it. You see it a lot where people find a security vulnerability, they report it to the company, you know, privately, and instead of getting patted on the back and and getting a nice thank you, they get like a cease and desist letter and and a threat. Um, yeah, and in fact, I think that like one of the first follies you would get from the company is like, hey, when you bought this product, you agreed in your license agreement that you couldn't do X, Y, and Z, and you did. You're violating your license agreement, and I think that's why a lot of these people who are seeking out security vulnerabilities in products actually go find discarded products in the garbage so they're not so they can take the position that they're not bound by the license agreement that comes along with buying the device i don't know i'm just curious about this whole area is very curious to me so um i mean there's a long healthy tradition of trying to manage um your obligations around um intellectual property rights so there's um what's known as clean room development, where to avoid copyright infringement in software, you will, somebody will look at a piece of software, but not tell their development team any of the details. They will say, here are the following problems I want you to solve. Here are the following um, uh, user interface aspects I would like to see. Um, Go develop it on your own and then come back to me. And so there are where they, the team that's developing the new piece of software has no, has never seen the old software, the competitor software has never interacted with it, has never seen the code and just is given the requirements that they need to fulfill. And, you know, that's been a long, healthy tradition. Similarly, patents protect how you do something not the fact that there was a solution to a problem. So if somebody figures out another how, another way of solving a problem, they may not infringe the patent that exists before, and in fact may be entitled to their own patent. Right, Right. and it might might not even be derived from the prior art. It might just be something completely independent. Right, and so often when we're working with clients that are in a particularly valuable uh, area, we'll take a strategy known as picket fencing, where you get multiple patents on multiple different solutions. So just like you have pickets in a fence, you get a bunch of different patents on each one of the techniques that are out there that will then um, hopefully block the competition. You don't want to miss any pickets in your fence. Otherwise, you know, either something gets in that you don't want or something gets out that you didn't want. Sure. Well, what do you think, Mike? Any parting thoughts, questions? Yeah, this is great stuff. I mean, we should have you back. I mean, I'd love to, I kind of, in, in a way, I I think this was a conversation that, that touched on all the stuff that I wanted to hear about. We, we should probably have you back on sometime just to talk about the patent basics of like, so for your typical, because our audience is generally folks that are in startups, they're, they're working on some interesting technology. And I think there's, there's, um, there's always a need for people to to have a better understanding of what is and isn't patentable. So uh, that's something we should circle back on one of these days and have you back and just talk about, you know, what, what qualifies, what qualifies for patent protection and what are the, what are the factors that they look at? Um, and uh, yeah, but, but I think this has been a great conversation. Uh, you know, I folks, I encourage people to think about, about Adam and, and, um, and his firm, if, if they're 
if they have any kind of patent needs whatsoever. I mean, I think he's he's a great resource in town, and he's um, really great for working with startups. And 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 um, you know, if you're looking for somebody that's um, really understands software and tech and elect, you know, computer science and uh, I guess electrical engineering patents, uh, his his firm is is definitely uh, the place to go. And in case you didn't get that firm name, it's Aon Law. That's right. You have you have a website we can we can send people to. What's the uh, that's the best way for them to find it? Aonlaw.com. Thank you, Adam. It's been really great. No, it's my pleasure, and I'd be happy to come back on and and talk about the the basics as well. Awesome. Well, thanks for being on, and everyone else, thanks for listening. We'll see you all next week.